You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing evangelical masculinity. What are the characteristics of ideal evangelical men? Do evangelical conceptions of masculinity contribute to cultures of violence? What are evangelical men taught about sexuality? And what do evangelical ideas about masculinity have to do with America's current political climate? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Bradley Onishi. He is a scholar of religion, former youth pastor at an evangelical church, and host of the podcast Straight White American Jesus, a podcast about religion and politics that I'm sure many Revealer Podcast listeners will enjoy. He is also the author of the excellent recent Revealer article, God is Ultimate Masculinity, Evangelical Visions of Manhood in the Wake of the Atlanta Massacre from the Revealer's April 2021 issue. You can read it at therevealer.org. Hi, Brad. Thanks for taking the time to chat. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. It is an honor, and uh, it was an honor to write for the Revealer, and it's an honor to be on the podcast. Oh, great. So I, I have to just start by saying that your article, God is Ultimate Masculinity, is a really beautifully crafted piece that includes many vivid scenes that have stayed with me and that I found quite insightful, in part because you have these fascinating firsthand experiences. You became an evangelical as an adolescent and then eventually a youth pastor and then left much of that and got a PhD in religion. So you also have really helpful scholarly expertise. So I'm thrilled to talk to you about these issues of evangelical masculinity, sexuality, and violence that you address in your really great article. Thank you. In my work, I try to bring an insider-outsider perspective, and so I'm glad that came through in the, in the piece. 100%. So we published that article in the wake of the Atlanta shooting massacre where a man from an evangelical community shot and killed several people, particularly Asian women and women of Asian descent. And you say in the piece that when that happened and when you learned the killer attended an evangelical church, that you started reflecting on the messages you had received uh, as an evangelical about masculinity. So I'd like to start with some basics. How would you describe ideas about the ideal evangelical Christian man? What are his characteristics? And from where are you drawing these conclusions and observations about ideal evangelical masculinity? Yeah, it's an important question. For me, the ideal evangelical Christian man is the mainstream toxic masculine cis straight guy that you imagine. And yet he is given a kind of transcendent authority that comes with a certain religious identity and also takes on the idea that he's been given a mission as a kind of real American who's chosen by God to be part of what he considers the greatest country on earth. And so we have this mix of what I would say is is pretty, unfortunately, standard toxic masculinity as it is manifest uh, in in the United States, uh, particularly by cis straight men. And yet it's it's given this this sense of divine authority or divine power Mm. because it's not just... Uh, cultivated on earth, but it supposedly comes from on high. And then there's just this mix of American exceptionalism and American nationalism. 
that goes through and through the kind of evangelical masculine uh, identity formation. Now, the, the, the characteristics of the evangelical man are very familiar to folks who will sort of have been familiar with toxic masculine people. Uh, they're overly aggressive. They're brusque. They are authoritative. They are quick to act, slow to say sorry. And, you know, in many ways, I think Kristen Cobas Dumay has just written a fabulous book describing uh, evangelical masculinity in the vein of John Wayne or yes. Mel Gibson's Braveheart or, uh, you know, other kinds of General MacArthur, whoever may be, uh, figures that have been held up as emblems of masculinity. Um, I also, again, I just want to reiterate, though, that what happens here is is not only a toxic form of manhood, it's it's really imbued with a sense of mission and a sense of transcendence. And I think that's what supercharges it, right? I yeah. think that's what that sort of makes it exponentially uh, dangerous and expansive. Now, I, I've done the work. I've read uh, deeply, you know, to kind of understand uh, evangelical masculinity. I, I'm writing a book now that has taken me through the archives of Focus on the Family and James Dobson, mm -hmm. uh, Barry Goldwater, Jerry Falwell, and everything in between. But I also lived it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I remember being 14 and my, my very first Sunday school teacher after I converted to evangelicalism in a predominantly white church was a football player. He was an ex-linebacker. And he asked us in our Sunday school class, you know, these 14, 15-year-old boys, he said, a lot of you guys play sports. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian who plays sports? And you know, I was new and I, I didn't, but I was a convert. I was very zealous. And I said, well, isn't it that we're supposed to be caring and gentle and, and, and show kindness, right, to our teammates sure. and our opponents? And, and he says, well, maybe. What we really need to do, though, is be as aggressive and as vicious as possible and give everything we have, you know, for our team and for our, our school. And that will show God and others how dedicated we are. And I'll, hmm. it seems like a very small moment. But I'll never forget that because it completely changed how I thought you were supposed to be a Christian and a man. So help us understand, those of us who have not been part of evangelical communities, especially predominant white evangelical communities, why is aggression and being tough valorized as the best way to be a Christian man? So if he, if you, this you know, person at your church was like, yeah, that's nice that you want to be kind and caring, but what you really need to do is make sure everyone knows that you are tough and you will fight back, etc. Why is that an important religious trait of manhood? You know, in some sense, there's something very ordinary here in an unfortunate sense. And what I mean by that is, I think we see throughout our culture in this country, the kind of admiration for tough guys. And it, it really does create a sense of masculinity that is uh, one that prizes aggression, it prizes uh, assertiveness, it, it prizes uh, a sense of authority that unfortunately we see all too often, whether we, you go to the gym or you go to a sports game or you're just hanging around um, mm -hmm. a high school or college campus or whatever it may be. So there's something very ordinary here. But again, there's a supercharge to this. And so evangelical churches, teachers, and men are very good at cherry-picking aspects of Scripture to kind of reinforce uh, these characteristics, right? So you can find in Scripture examples of God the Father who is supposed to be the ultimate example of masculinity. Right. What does that look like? He conquers the Canaanites. He slaughters his enemies. When Israel, who in Isaiah 53, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Hosea, is framed as God's wife, and Israel cheats on him, he abuses her and punishes her in public. God is often framed as the one who provides everything that uh, his wife Israel needs. 
uh, that may be food or water or clothing or protection from enemies. And so the idea that you're the ultimate protector, aggressor, authority is constructed from, from very selective readings and selective choices of scriptural passages. And so you can build the idea of God the Father as your example of ultimate manhood. And, and the traits of that manhood are violence. The traits of that manhood are conquering. The traits of that manhood are if someone betrays you, if your wife does something that hurts you, abuse her punish her in public, humiliate her in front of other people. So you can really see how, again, this goes from that ordinary toxic masculinity, I say ordinary in the most unfortunate sense, right. to the, the kind of supercharged, scripturally backed form of evangelical toxic masculinity. And hearing you say that, it, I mean, it reminds me of in the article, you mentioned that it was common or there was no disconnect between witnessing public wife shaming and and a man's spiritual leadership that and you say that quote they went hand in hand so i i guess that also raises questions like why are evangelical women okay with these constructions of masculinity so i think there's a couple things at play i think that many evangelical women like many evangelical men have never experienced anything else you know one of the things that occurred to me after i left evangelicalism is that i just assumed that that's what it meant to be a man uh, mm. i left southern california and the mega church where i had been a minister for oxford to go to graduate school yeah. and all of a sudden for the first time in my life i was around men who were writers and poets and scholars and just had a very different understanding of what it meant to be masculine mm -hmm. and it made me reflect on the fact that in my church I had never met anyone who was like that, that the men who were held up as exemplars were, you know, were doers, not thinkers. They were not the kinds of folks that reflected. They were the kinds of folks who acted, right? And so many evangelical men and women have never experienced anything else, and they don't have the tools to reflect on these things. I think, again, that's why Kristen Cobes Dumais' book, Jesus and John Wayne, has been such a, a lightning rod for those even within the movement. The other thing, though, is that there's a buying into the prescribed gender roles that men are supposed to be seen as protectors, aggressors, initiators, and women are supposed to be uh, subservient and supposed to be complements to the authoritative man. Unfortunately, this set of gender roles has the virtue of simplicity. It's a binary. There's men, there's women. Men do this, women do that. There are no other categories. And there, I mean, this plays into the homophobia and queerphobia we see coming from evangelical spaces. Yeah. But there's no other there's no other categories to kind of reckon with. That leads to a sense of safety, a sense of order, a sense of control. You know what to expect. And unfortunately, that's how patriarchy works in many cases that right by offering those things, it can then barter for the other, which is, again, all the things I just mentioned, violence and aggression and an outsized sense of authority, a lack of willingness to listen or apologize, whatever. Um, I'm a Californian, I'm a meat eater, so I, I know some folks out there aren't, but uh, I will defend in and out above <laughs> all uh, other burger fast food chains uh, to my death. Five Guys, <laughs> Shake Shack, I'm sorry, I know we're oh. losing listeners right now, I know, people are upset, <laughs> I know, I can hear them turning off turning off the episode. But why am I mentioning in and out When you go to in and out there's no chicken sandwich, there's no fish sandwich, there's no salad. It's either hamburger or cheeseburger. And for many folks, that sounds terrible, because they don't want a hamburger or a cheeseburger. But there's many people who just, that is so nice. I don't have to think about it. I don't have yeah. to, 
I don't have to reflect. I don't have to use any judgment or uh, a sense of uh, reflection. That comfort, I think, is part of why people stay. Now, I'll, I'll mention one more thing, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, and that's fear. There's a fear of, of standing up to the authorities in your church and in your home. There's a, a fear of retribution. There's a fear that uh, if physical violence is levied upon you, if sexual violence is levied upon you, no one will believe you, that the church and your community will take the side of the abuser rather than of the victim. And so that is also part of this puzzle in unfortunate ways. Yeah. So then if we stay with young men in, in these contexts, what happens to boys in evangelical churches who just aren't able to easily conform to the narrow and macho expectations of manhood that you've been describing? You know, I think I've certainly read about people who've grown up in other religious communities who were certainly not macho, and the church actually provided them a bit of a respite from cultural expectations for masculinity because they could be in the choir or they could do Christmas pageants or they could volunteer to help the Sunday school teacher and be praised for it. But that doesn't seem to be what you're describing here. So what happens to boys in these predominantly white evangelical communities for whom adhering easily to macho expectations of manhood is, is difficult? I think two things. One is oppression. Uh, they're not treated like they're real men. They're sort of looked down upon for not living up to their roles as the protector of the house, as the uh, person who's fulfilling their God-given you know, role as initiator, as aggressor, as protector. And so there's a sense of you know, kind of the, the community policing itself and policing men to uh, perform masculinity in a certain way. And so you're kind of always under that pressure. Yeah, you might sing in the choir, and that's great, but how else are you gonna show your manliness? Yes, you might uh, be a talented singer or you might help teach the kids in Sunday school, but you're gonna need to counterbalance that, right? With some show of masculinity. In the piece, I mentioned somebody who was part of my church and was actually, grew up in our church and ended up leaving uh, because he identified as gay. And he came back five or six years later and had sworn off his gay identity uh, had had claimed and still claims to this day that he is now ex-gay, which is something you hear in evangelical spaces. But in order to show his his sort of manliness, you know, that summer at summer camp, he was one of the leaders and the counselors at our summer camp all summer. And he actually ended up hunting and shooting a bear that had come into camp a couple of times. And I bring that up because it was a great, it was for him in his mind, I know, I know a way to show, look, I, <laughs> You cannot question my manhood. I'm out here shooting this bear. Are you shooting bears? Do you have a gun? Are you shooting 800-pound animals? You're not. Okay, so you don't ever get to question my manhood ever again, right? So I think oppression is one, and I think repression is another. I think men are taught to repress their emotional, physical, and, and, and psychological selves in order to perform this, uh, you know, this sense of masculinity, right? Uh, and whether or not that the repression is taking place because they have a sexual identity that doesn't fit into the community's uh, categories, they have a gender identity that doesn't fit, or even, and, and I'll just say this for me personally, I'm a cis straight man. And even as a cis straight man, even as somebody who you would think would feel like, okay, I can kind of mold myself pretty well into this community. Every time I was, I was in church and I was around uh, men at retreats and at camps and other things, I kind of felt this like, okay, you got you to make sure to do this the right way. Like I remember a time when uh, I was 
I was helping pack the, the vans for summer camp. And, and the last thing to pack was, was my car that I was driving. And my, my now ex-wife did all the packing. She was, she was really good at it. And I just said, okay, you go for it. And I remember this elder in my church, this middle-aged man came over and was like, oh, you got, you got your wife packing the car, huh? Never seen that before. And it was just this like very subtle form of disapproval. He kind of looked at me like, oh, you're going to let her do that, right? Okay, well, I didn't know you were that kind of guy. It's a very small example, but, but, it's a ve- but to me, it's, it's, it's a very telling example of how this works. Yes. So you mentioned earlier, I think, you know, we can draw some conclusions about how these expectations for being the protector slash aggressor leads to, at times, public wife shaming and then perhaps by extension, um, domestic abuse. Are there other ways that you are concerned about how evangelical visions of manhood contribute to violence more broadly? I I am. And I think this works. There's a couple of steps here, right? So I think that evangelical men and young, you know, male adolescents, young boys are taught kind of conflicting things about themselves. In a very strange way, uh, evangelicalism reduces people to sexual beings. And when I say that, I, I can hear them all in my head saying, what are you talking about? No, you're God's creature. You're created by God for God's glory and all this stuff. But when you dig into the teaching, it's this. God created men and women. He created them to be man and wife, and he created them to procreate. So your, when it comes to your earthly life, if we boil it down to its most essential elements, it's to be a, a spouse in a heterosexual relationship to, and to have a procreative relationship. You are a sexual being through and through, okay? And yet you're taught that until you are married— that any sexual desire, thought, fantasy, impulse is sinful. So in one hand, I'm telling you, you are essentially a sexual being. On the other hand, I'm saying, if you have a sexual desire, thought, impulse, fantasy, you are sinning against the God who created you. There are no outlets, right? There's, you know, there's, there's no sexual outlet. There's no sexual uh, form of release that is uh, permitted by the community. And so as a young person, you are really living in this perpetual conflict. To me, that is a a really good Petri dish for poor understandings of yourself and your body, a sense of self-hatred and and repression. It's a really great puzzle for thinking that something's wrong with you because you are a sexual being who has sexual thoughts and thinking that you're a sex addict, like Robert Aaron Long said he was, the perpetrator of the Atlanta massacre. And... Yes. It's also, I'll just mention one more thing here, that when you do get married, and this is going to sound a little bit strange, but I hope it makes sense, you, you have to go from that person who is doing everything they can to just always have the brakes on their sexuality, to as a man, you're supposed to be the aggressor, the initiator, the ultimate masculine specimen. So unless you manifest that as a sexual being in your relationship, unless you have a nonstop, uncontrollable sexual appetite, you are then, once again, considered not a real man, and that judgment will come from you. It might come from your spouse. It might come from any number of directions. All of that together means whether you're married or not married, whether you're young or old, there's always these sort of like paradoxes that make it impossible for most people to feel as if they are a healthy, well-functioning sexual being. And to me, if we take that seriously— And we take the words of Robert Aaron Long seriously, the Atlanta massacre perpetrator. We can see why the idea of sex addiction and eliminating temptation is a big part 
of what happened in that unspeakably tragic set of events, not to mention the racial aspects, the gendered aspects, and, and all the other things. So if you reduce people to sex, tell them that any sexual desire is terrible, and then provide them no outlet to resolve any of that conflict or tension, you're really setting them up to fail, and you're also setting them up to be unhealthy in terms of their self-relation and their relationship to other people. You know, I once watched, you're reminding me, of a Kirk Cameron evangelical movie. <laughs> and um, basically the movie's main villain was internet pornography. Yeah. And, you know, there are many critiques of pornography and the treatment of sex workers, but there, there, there seemed to be a very specific concern I gathered from this movie in evangelical circles about men and pornography. So what is the concern about men before they're married being able to have any type of sexual release or acknowledging that they will have sexual desires. What's the concern there? What's the need to control that? So on its surface, this comes from, you know, Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, if you lust after someone who is not your, your spouse or your wife, you're committing adultery in your heart. So evangelicals take this seriously. I mean, it, it, during my teenage years, if you said, what is the verse you thought about the most? It was that one. And so- yeah. What is concluded from that verse is that if you have a sexual thought about someone who is not your wife, then you have committed adultery. It is as if you are married and you have gone out and had a sexual encounter with another person. And so hmm. whether that is having a sexual thought about someone that you know in real life or that you pass on the street or whatever, or a sexual thought about somebody that you see on a TV screen or a movie, or even worse, sexual thoughts about somebody who in a pornographic you know, film or whatever else, you've really reached a place of betraying God and yourself. And one of the, the defining aspects of, of evangelical culture, uh, and this relates to masculinity, but it relates to sex more generally, is if you ask people about sin, they usually say, well, a sin's a sin, right? If you get angry at your kids, that's just as bad as somebody who uh, does some egregious violent act. God forgives all sins and God sees all sins the same. And yet what you're taught is that there's this kind of exceptionalism when it comes to sex, that if you have sex before you're married, you're irrevocably damaged. If you have sex with people who are not your your spouse, you will do damage to yourself and to your relationship forever and ever and ever. You might even do damage to your kids and, their, and your grandkids because it will set the tone. You might even do damage to your nation because you're gonna have a family built on uh, impurity rather than uh, commitment to God. If you put all that together, and you've got the, the young man who's 17 or 19 or 21 who views internet erotica or pornography for 10 minutes a couple times a week, that's not seen as some sort of sexual release. It's seen as an addiction that comes straight from the devil. And that is how it's ingested and it's appropriated in the mind of that young man. And it really does, again, create a, a cauldron uh, of repression and self-hatred and unhealthy relationships to self and others. So I'm thinking now just about the rise of people who've embraced the ex-evangelical term and have been quite public about how growing up in, in a culture that has thought of sex this way, about the various ways that trauma has manifested for them, both psychologically, but also physically, and become, you know, for many of them have described decades of dealing with uh, what they were taught as adolescents about trying to just refrain from acknowledging their sexuality until they entered marriage. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a very real phenomenon, and it's a very 
important phenomenon. I mean, one of the things I'm working on now is a series of podcasts and, and eventually a book on masculinity, sex, and love after purity culture, because one of the things that's happened over the last 20 years is that we have so much great work. And if people are interested in this work, um, I would encourage them to check it out uh, about the traumatizing effects of purity culture, specifically on women. Women are supposed to be the gatekeepers of sexuality, the gatekeepers of purity. They're supposed to keep these men who are envisioned as barbarians from overstepping the, the bounds of God's plan uh, for, for sex and love before marriage. And so memoir by Linda K. Klein and work by Jamie Lee Finch and scholarship by Sarah Mosliner and, and Julie Ingersoll and, and others has brought all of this uh, really to, to the fore. And it is so important. Uh, this is probably the one place where cis straight men have not butted in and, and tried to take up too much space. This is a place where hmm. uh, we really don't have m many resources for men trying to recover from purity culture and the trauma it inflicted upon them. I know for me personally, it, it has been, and it still is, a, a kind of journey to, to feel like I'm a healthy person when it comes to love and sex and masculinity. And I'm always taking sort of stock of how I'm conceiving of myself when it comes to those th those aspects uh, of who I am. And no matter what I do, Brett, it all goes back <laughs> to those formative teenage years. I mean, no matter how old I get, no matter how many uh, relationships and uh, friendships and different stages of life I enter, it all comes back to that that set of teachings that I imbibed when I was young. And, and it's just, it really is not easy to get over. And so uh, I, I'm going to be dedicating a lot of my time and work to that. And I know that there's many others doing that. And some of the folks I've mentioned are, have already really paved the way for that to happen. That's good. I'm already excited to, to read your work on that. I do also want to make sure to ask you, I think much of what we've been talking about today in terms of evangelical visions of masculinity, if I understand correctly, is primarily about white evangelicals. So I want, is, would you say that that's accurate? And if so, in what ways does race play a role in everything we've been discussing? I do think you can find a lot of what I've been talking about in churches that are either mixed or predominantly not white. I, so don't get me wrong. I do think you can find this uh, iteration of masculinity in uh, other conservative Christian spaces. The, the thing I will say that is distinct about white evangelical masculinity is that if you read the work by Leslie Doral Smith, Compromising Positions, if you read uh, Sarah Mosliner's Virgin Nation, if you read Megan Goodwin's Abusing Religion, what we learn is that it's really only white men who are allowed to act as the sort of John Wayne figure, the uh, aggressive, initiating, brusque, and, and often violent figure without social sanction. If you, are an, if you are a black man in that situation, if you are a Latino man in that situation, you are going to be viewed much differently than the white man. You're not John Wayne. You're the bad guy in the John Wayne movie, most, most likely. That's right. And so I think that, to me, is the distinctive part of this puzzle. And, it, and for me, as an Asian-American man, it's a whole, uh, there, there's a whole other set of, of lenses and, and frames that are used to, uh, to judge and com compartmentalize Asian, uh, and Asian-American masculinity. Uh, so I think there's a distinction to the privilege of being a white evangelical man uh, that uh, is not afforded to others. So I'd like to end by asking, what does all of this that we've been talking about today, evangelical conceptions of masculinity, have to do with our current political situation in the United States? How do you see it spilling over from churches into the political sphere? So the reason we call our podcast Straight White American Jesus is that it seems that we've really reached a point where there's a, a recognition on the part of a, of a wider public that 
many white Christians in this country see somebody like John Wayne, like uh, Mel Gibson's Braveheart, like Donald Trump, as more in the likeness of Jesus than anyone else. And so what I think the Trump years brought us, along with many calamities and embarrassments and tragedies, was the recognition by a wider public that we have a, a situation in our country where evangelical conceptions of manhood and evangelical conceptions of sex and, and love have a profound effect on how those things are treated in the American public square writ large. There was no getting away from that in the Trump years, from the way you know evangelical figures like James Dobson or others spoke about Trump, but to the, to the ways that Trump and his cabinet emanated the sense of what it meant to be a man that Mike Pompeo or, or, or Mark Meadows or others really sort of gave off the aura of the kind of manhood I'm talking about today. They, all of them seem to have a kind of reverence for strongman leaders like Putin or Orban, and that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother time. And so I think what we're, what we're seeing here is our politics are infected with these conceptions of masculinity, love, sex, uh, and so on. And the Trump years just made it so there was no denying that anymore. There was just no looking away from that. Like the, the Bush years or the, the Reagan years, if you looked under the surface with a keen investigative eye, you would have found it. But in the Trump years, all you had to do was turn on the TV any given night. And I think most folks kind of got the picture. And so I think that's why there's a need and, and also a desire to talk about this uh, at this current political moment. Great. Thank you. And thank you for this very insightful conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Bradley Onishi. You can find his excellent article, God is Ultimate Masculinity, Evangelical Visions of Manhood in the Wake of the Atlanta Massacre in the Revealer's April issue at therevealer.org. And you should check out his podcast, Straight White American Jesus. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing sex education in the United States and how religion shaped public school sex education curriculum. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.